Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. We are sitting in a beautiful forest, surrounded by ponderosa pine, Douglas fir, larch. I'm looking at a beautiful pond with a lot of bird life all around us. So I'm sitting here with John Cantor, and he's the senior wildlife biologist for the National Wildlife Federation. And I just want to first say thank you so much, John, for making the time to sit with me in the forest office and get a little audio. It's really great to be here. You know, learning that you spent time growing up in South Africa reminds me that from the time I can remember, I was just fascinated with African wildlife. And I grew up outside of Cincinnati, and when I was three years old, I wanted to be an elephant when I grew up. So that's how I felt with the wildlife of Africa and and elephants in particular. From the time I could read, that's what I did. And everybody gave me stuffed animals that were elephants and statues. I used you know, animals were central to the way I thought. An outdoor adventure came in too, because our generation were kind of the latchkey kids, so to speak if you will. We weren't latched in anywhere. (laughs) We were out in the woods exploring and we spent all our time out there and flipping over rocks, looking for salamanders, two-line salamanders in the streams. And we had black rat snakes. They're super cool. They get up to like six feet. So we became known in the neighborhood because a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Some of us don't understand why, because we you were really intrigued by them. And so our neighbors would come get us if they had one of these big black rat snakes. And, you know, we didn't have any mentors for like, what do you do when you have this wild animal? So we, you know, we keep it for like a week or something and have it in one of these big bins or something and take it out and look at it and then go release it back into the woods. So I played outside all the time, but I had this fascination with African wildlife and spent a ton of time. Cincinnati is just really fortunate to have a really high quality zoo in that zoo in all our time at that led to my mom who was a pediatrician being asked to take care of the gorillas being born in captivity because they come up with the same ailments as a human infant and so I got those wonderful experiences of being over there you know actually even being able to hold you know young gorillas and so that really was etched and then the other thing is that my dad he was in Korea and he said that he had enough camping for a lifetime so he wasn't really an outdoors person we thought we I think we joked that his idea of a camping experience was a holiday inn but my mom loved to be outside and she loved to fish and and she had fished with her dad growing up and she taught us all how to fish and you know there was this local county lake Winton Woods and so many times out there with her sometimes she'd be rowing you know three young kids were tangling actually my brother and sister weren't tangling lines I was tangling my line and their lines I was the youngest and so that was I'll call it more participation part of actually being in nature and learning about fishing and the patience and everything involved 
there's no exposure to what a career would look like in this. I think I always said, well, I love animals, so I'm going to be a veterinarian. Because that was the only thing that I could think of shooting for. Nobody could tell me what a wildlife biologist did. And then even into high school, where I went to a Jesuit prep school, you know, and the college counselors like, oh, well, you know, people go to, this is in Ohio, you know, people go to Denison for pre-med. They have the zoology program. Not really understanding <laughs> what it was that this kid was interested in. But through, you know, talking to, to my mom and exploring around, I found out that, hey, there's this field of, you know, wildlife biology, wildlife management. And so I, you know, went off to Ohio State. And, you know, that's where I got my bachelor's and was exposed to all kinds of experience. I was, re I was really fortunate there in some ways in that, you know, wildlife biology is kind of a new was a new discipline, if you will, founded by Aldo Leopold at the University of Wisconsin. And even at this time, which was, was in the 80s, the first and second generation of wildlife biology professors were fairly new part of the system. So you were educated by the more fish and wildlife parasitologists that wasn't necessarily interested in conservation he was just interested in how parasites interact with you know their their host organisms and the animal behavior professor was interested in the basics of what make animals tick so it was really cool to have this kind of basic more science focused zoology background combined with the applied you know how do you make habitat better for for wildlife and so went on from there to pursue a master's in wildlife ecology at the University of New Hampshire. I actually studied white-tailed deer. I went there to work on bobcats, but my major professor had never had a sabbatical and he was hitting his 40s and he said, I'm out of here. And he went on a trip around the world with his family. And I had a full research assistantship. So I, did, I had to do this white-tailed deer project, which I love. We worked with a captive herd of white-tailed deer. So that hands-on experience I had with wildlife. And I had some experience with it because I worked at this wild animal park one of these monorail systems outside it was king's island amusement park outside of cincinnati and you know african wildlife asian wildlife north american wildlife and so i was well versed in how to shovel <laughs> and that was a good thing for me to have running a what we called the game farm we had deer turkey and bobcats and so i studied the the impacts of season and temperature on white-tailed deer but i was very interested in Everything from turtles and salamanders to songbirds and birds of prey and wolves and, and that. And as I left my graduate program, you know, I was thinking about that. And for a while, I worked with foresters on, you know, when they're thinking about how to cut trees to make better growth in trees, how could they do a better job of considering what the habitat needs are for, for wildlife? The wildlifers would joke that, They'd look at the forest and they go, if something's too steep to cut on, that's the wildlife area over here. And we're like, no, nah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so you got to get a little more creative than that. And then the non-game and endangered species position came open at the state of New Hampshire Fishing Game Department. And that was what I wanted because that really encompasses most of the wildlife, most of the animal diversity, songbirds, reptiles, amphibians, butterflies, uh, freshwater mussels. And so that program was very new at the time. And I was the second biologist in that job. 
So part of what I did was got people together to help work in partnership. Our affiliate there in New Hampshire is New Hampshire Audubon, and they actually, for a while, they helped the state by running the bald eagle and peregrine falcon restoration. They were very endangered at the time because of DDT. And so I launched into working partnerships with groups from around the state and that and helped not only the wildlife, but developed the program into something that, you know, had grown and and been able to make a big difference for wildlife. I'm very proud to say that during that time, thanks to the efforts of lots of people, I can think of like Chris Martin at New Hampshire Audubon and Carol Foss and other folks that Michael Amrall that led the bald eagle restoration. But when, you know, I started there in 93, but in 89, we'd gotten our first pair of bald eagles. And when I left my position there 25 years later, there were close to 60 pairs of bald eagles. We were shooting for five. <laughs> we thought that was going to be good. And, and then peregrine falcons came back, osprey, another bird of prey. So a lot of focus, the early ones, were on birds. New Hampshire Audubon, you know, was... was uh, very focused on bird life. And then we, you know, transition to lesser known things like reptiles and amphibians. And we have some freshwater turtles like the Blandings and the spotted the wood turtle that not a lot was known about them, except that they're really vulnerable to changes, roads and stuff in the landscape because it takes them, we'll just say on average in that northern climate, you know, where they're hibernating half the time, it takes them about 15 years before of the capability of reproducing and the females of laying eggs. And uh, so we focused a lot on learning about them and how to protect them. We had a butterfly that, that what we say in the business, blinked out, the corner blue butterfly, which was federally endangered. And luckily we had uh, a biologist that was working with me had done his PhD work on corner blue butterflies in New York and came up with a translocation scheme. So we got carnivore blue butterfly caterpillars from our friends over in New York who were working on the restoration, set up a lab, and over 10 years, we released them back into the wild, and we, we had land that we got set aside to do restoration work. They like wild lupin plant. The wild blue lupin is their host plant, the only thing that their caterpillar eats. You know, that's been a very successful project. And then I kind of saving the favor for last. And that is that off the coast of New Hampshire and Maine, there's this little group of islands called the Isle of Shoals. And a lot of different seabirds used to nest out there, um, in particular common terns and roseate terns and arctic terns. And because things got so good for the gulls, herring gulls, blackback gulls, their populations really boomed at the expense of the other seabirds. They out-compete them for the nesting islands. They'll eat, you know, young terns, turn eggs. And so we just kind of set about putting aside a couple of the smaller islands that are in New Hampshire for the terns. And basically we use these modified fireworks to keep the gulls from setting up their nests on the island. And then uh, Diane DeLuca at the time was with New Hampshire Audubon and she had worked with Dr. Steve Kress up in Maine. He was with National Audubon and he pioneered some of the stuff to bring back puffins. So Project Puffin was a big success and he also brought back terns and other seabirds by these different island techniques. And ours was to 
just keep scaring the gulls off. There are still on the islands all around us, but these two smaller pieces and the technique was to play. We had at the time was a CD, solar powered CD that was playing this continuous turn colony recording. And then some of the folks from Audubon uh, carved decoys that looked like turns and we gave ourselves, my friend Rich Cook was the vice president of the conservation programs at the time there. And, and we didn't have budget to do this. So we had a little startup money from the coastal program. And we said, okay, we're going to do this for three years. And if the birds come back in that time, great. And if not, we're just going to pull it. We'll just say it, it doesn't work in, in this situation. Within the first season, we had five pairs of common terns come in and nest. And so that project was about 20 of the 25 years there. And we worked with, with various partners at the university in the Shoals Marine Lab, which is a marine education place for Cornell and University of New Hampshire. And they've helped run the project in the past 10 years. And so anyway, <laughs> the end of all that is was five pairs the first year. And now there are over 3,000 pairs of common terns that nest there. The kind of the icing on the cake are roseate terns, which are a federally endangered bird. Their populations have been declining. We have, you know, anywhere from like 50 to 100 of them. They almost always nest with one of their ways of surviving is by nesting on the edge of common terns. And common terns then keep gulls and falcons and other things from, you know, preying on, on their young. And so we also got the, this this federally endangered bird you know, restored to the islands and, and get to go out there now. It's actually, when I go out there, go striper fishing. It's, you see all these turns flying around. I go, some of the folks with fancy sailboats don't like it because I perch on them and, and they might poop on them some, but, but they weren't there, you know, yeah. they weren't there. And thanks to all these folks pitching in and doing that, those birds are back, a big part of the system. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. John and I are sitting in the forest here in the Northwest. And John, I was wondering if you could start us out by painting a picture to the listener as to where you're sitting right now. What are you looking at? Who are you hearing in the background? Well, first of all, uh, the setting, it's just, we're talking a cloudless, ooh, there's a tiny little puffy cloud sky with a, looks like about a third of a moon uh, visible. I'm in an open meadow looking up at a forest, uh, mostly conifers. I heard you saying earlier, we're, we're looking at ponderosa pine and dug fir and not spending as much time out west. I'll take your word for it. But this forest, it reminds me of the spruce and fir in the northern part of New Hampshire where I live. And as somebody who's fascinated with birds and how they tell the story of what kind of forest you're in, I'm, 
always listening. I call it ornithology because combining birds with ecology, you know, habitat in the bird. So there's a warbling vireo that's singing above us here. Red-winged blackbird, there's a little cattail marsh that the red-winged blackbird is in calling from. There's probably females down there and they're tending to the nests. I've been hearing ruby-crowned kinglets. They're a tiny bird with a big song. It's just cool wind and it's, it's one of the most relaxing, crisp, healthy kind of places I think I've ever sat in. So that's what I'm seeing here. Beautiful. John, you're the senior wildlife biologist with the National Wildlife Federation. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be with NWF. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I had experience as a a wildlife biologist working for a state. We really had no funding source. There aren't monies that go towards endangered species conservation at the state level. There's a little bit that comes in, but not enough, and especially not enough to prevent wildlife from declining to the point that they need that kind of emergency room attention. So one thing I've done is Naomi Edelson, who's with National Wildlife Federation, you know, has really over her career developed part of the group that is organized to advocate for wildlife funding have been these state biologists that see the need. And she would bring us to Washington since we were public employees. We weren't there to lobby. We were there to talk about why this funding was important. And as we've got some funds from the federal budget, what we were doing with them and why they were important. And so over that time, I I developed an appreciation. You know, we can talk about, we can appreciate how much we enjoy the nature around us, but somebody's got to take care of it and to take care of it, you need to have funding. You know, when I was young, I got, we used to have both national and international wildlife magazines. So I always got those. And I just respected National Wildlife Federation as an organization that, you may have differences of opinions and be from, you know, different parts of the country or whatever, but if you are interested in conservation of wildlife, you're welcome. And so I like that, giving everybody the opportunity to participate. And so I kind of felt I'd done what I could do is, is the uh, heading up the Nine Game and Endangered Species Program in New Hampshire. And I wanted to come go to Washington to help this national organization that I respected so much and to have the privilege of working for the organization and so my role is is really to you know take my you know 30 years or so of experience as a practicing wildlife and conservation biologist and use that knowledge to help inform our programs be it education or policy and advocacy one thing that i really found to be effective is when states didn't just think about what's going on in my state, but they, they talk, you know, so my peers and I from the Northeast states, from Virginia, North to Maine, we always met every year. We always stayed in touch and we could do a lot more working together, even to the point of where we pooled some of our wildlife grants to be able to do things at a regional scale, which, you know, wildlife, they don't care about our political boundaries. <laughs> and so working together, you know, we could we could do a lot more. 
and with National Wildlife Federation, myself and, and uh, Dr. Bruce Stein, uh, our chief scientists, have been working in the other regions of the country, the southeastern U.S. And, and Midwest, and are working to see what we can do in the, in the western U.S. to help these bottom-up multi-state efforts and to get great coordination with the federal agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Forest Service and U.S. Geological Services to work together, you know, on protecting wildlife and all the habitats that they depend on. So that's why I ended up working for National Wildlife Federation. One thing that you said earlier that I really loved was that you are a birder, right? You've been walking around the forest here with your binoculars and identifying various birds, but you were saying that in the summertime, you're a birder, but in the fall, you like to hunt the birds. Mm -hmm. And so you're a hunter, but you're also an angler. That's what you're doing out here out west. I would like to talk to you about Recovering America's Wildlife Act from the perspective of a waterfowl hunter and from the perspective of an angler. Mm -hmm. As an angler and as as a, a, a waterfowl hunter, you know, one thing that we see, there was just a, a big study that came out that showed that between 1970 and 2017 or whatever, when we've been doing these national surveys of birds, like if you look at the cumulative loss, there's 3 billion fewer birds in the springtime here, you know. The group of birds that's not doing poorly are ducks and geese because buying a federal waterfowl stamp, which you need to hunt, buying your license, usually states also have what they call a duck stamp where you pay extra to go duck hunting. And those monies have gone to on-the-ground conservation. I mean, those with good game regulations, you know, knowing how much of the population, you know, can be hunted and without affecting the overall numbers. You know, if you have funding and you can do the kind of conservation work that needs to happen, you can secure these populations for everybody's enjoyment. But it's only fish that are, you know, pursued for sport or ducks and geese and, and game animals like, you know, black bears and elk and white-tailed deer, those are where the monies are coming from. That's an excise tax on your hunting and fishing equipment and then your license fee that goes to habitat protection and research on the game population education programs. But most of the wildlife don't have that, you know, most of what we call some have referred to as wildlife diversity or the non-game species. And Recovering America's Wildlife Act it rounds that out and provides over a billion dollars to states and tribal nations to work together to protect all of the wildlife. And Recovering America's Wildlife Act is really, it is the essential piece for making sure that the habitats that wildlife thrive on, that protect clean air, clean water for people, that give us those refuge, those areas to reflect. And we know we've needed them <laughs> over this past year of COVID. You know, this is a really key bill and it will make such a difference because what benefited ducks and geese has also benefited so many other species. The circle will be completed if we go to to protect places for great blue herons and egrets and stuff, we're also going to be protecting places for, you know, wood ducks and black ducks and the other uh, species that people enjoy both to watch and, and to hunt. That's fantastic, John. 
Okay. If you've just tuned in, that's the voice of John Cantor. He's the senior wildlife biologist with the National Wildlife Federation. Now, John, one of the projects that you and I are collaborating on is the Lead Free Landscapes campaign. And I believe it was in 1991 that there was a ban on lead shot for waterfowl. Mm -hmm. I think it was 1978 that there was a ban on lead for paint. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, pretty soon here, people will be using non-lead ammunition and non-lead tackle. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could share with us the hunter-angler perspective on why you've made the decision to be lead-free? Mm-hmm. It kind of goes to a couple things. Uh, one, the species that I was uh, responsible in my program is the endangered species lead in New Hampshire uh, for protecting was a common loon. Their populations were increasing and doing well. And then all of a sudden we start seeing a lot of adult loons that had ingested sinkers or or jigs, and they were dying, and they are still are dying from ingesting this this tackle. The way birds digest is not the same as us, and the, the sinkers, this lead gets ground around and poisons their system over a two-week period. So, you know, knowing that this beautiful bird with this wonderful kind of history in New Hampshire where I live, you know, on Golden Pond was filmed on Squam Lake and centered on loons. And, you know, so there's one. I love fishing. Now that there are alternatives and, you know, tin and steel and, and these other materials, I, why? You know, it's like if I have an alternative, yeah, sometimes they don't even cost more. Why not? And then when it comes to, you know, ducks and geese, I mean, one of the main reasons actually was National Wildlife Federation that led the way under the Endangered Species Act because bald eagles were dying from eating ducks and geese that, you know, were were wounded and, and not retrieved. And here at that time, bald eagles were struggling, you know, their populations had been decimated from DDT and they were struggling to come back. And so that change was made. You know, now when I go out grouse hunting or pheasant hunting or something, I'm also using non-toxic stuff because if I winged a grouse and off it went and uh, wasn't doing well and uh, I couldn't find it, my dog couldn't find it, and a goshawk came by, which is a really cool bird of prey, kind of iconic to the forest. And, you know, I wouldn't want it (laughs) going through that same fate as a loon and dying from ingesting this game bird that I wasn't able to retrieve. So so that's why I switch, yeah. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank our premier sponsors for The Trail Less Traveled, New West Knife Works and the Mountain Man Toy Shop. Handmade knives and tools forged in their factory on the western slope of the Tetons in Victor, Idaho. New West Knife Works makes knives like they cook, using the best ingredients and preparing them with patient hands of an artist. Their aim is to bring more joy to everyday chores by making tools that are as beautiful as they are useful. See for yourself by visiting newwestknifeworks.com. Use promo code MANDELA for 10% off your entire purchase which will not only set you up with a knife that you will pass down for generations, this also supports the Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs. Visit newwestknifeworks.com using promo code M-A-N-D-E-L-A.
Sitting here in the forest with John Cantor, he is the senior wildlife biologist with the National Wildlife Federation. John, we've talked about so many fantastic things today. We've talked about the move to use lead-free ammunition and tackle when fishing and hunting. We've talked about recovering America's Wildlife Act. And I'd love to talk to you about another issue that we are all experiencing right now, and that is climate change. So as a wildlife biologist, could you reflect on climate change? Sure. You know, what I learned in my home state of New Hampshire, what really kind of brought it to attention as a, as a wildlife biologist was the kind of the demise of moose. Moose were coming back in the 70s during settlement days. You know, they were shot so much in that for food and everything that their populations are down dramatically. They were coming back and they are actually doing really well for a while in the, in the 80s when I worked on one of the the first moose studies in New Hampshire when I was just finishing graduate school, and they were there. Everybody loved seeing them. There's a place called Moose Alley where people just come up from Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire, and they would just park their cars off the side of the road. And moose would come in there, and you were guaranteed to see one. And after a while, the population just, you know, people weren't seeing moose anymore. And it turns out people were starting to find moose with thousands of ticks on them. And as a biologist, we're like, wait a minute, you know, a tick, this, they're not going to die from anemia because of ticks. You know, this is a kind of natural part of the cycle. Well, it wasn't a natural part of the cycle. The time that snows on the ground has shrunk and the winters aren't as long the snowy part of the winter isn't as long. And so those ticks survive better. And so they're just, you know, they're thriving. And then you had a lot of moose and uh, there's just great opportunity. And, and that's a, just a direct impact of what we thought, I think, was going to be more subtle. And so we have fewer moose. Now, you know, will they be there in the next 50, 100 years? Probably, you know, at a lower number than that. But Things are just changing dramatically. When I think about climate change and its impact, I think about whether it was overhunting, you know, in the days of market hunting and that, you know, we like, if we thought of the globe as like habitat, you know, we like were raiding the fridge too much from everything else. And then with the pollution days, we were spilling crap all over the house that everybody else is living in and, and that. There was still somewhere for you to get away from it. But when we changed the thermostat, <laughs> I'd laugh because it's just, it's just, when you think about that scale of what humans are doing to change the, you know, the condition of things for other living things on Earth. And that one's, it affects all species everywhere. John? One phrase I hear a lot is the climate's always been changing. Um, let's focus our efforts on something more important. So what would be your response to that statement right there? The climate does fluctuate and change, and it's going to fluctuate and change. And now those fluctuations and changes are going to take place in the backdrop of what really I'd like to refer to, you know, CO2 as CO2 pollution. So, you know, do you want things to be more extreme? You're playing with with fire and also why not if it's something that we can do that's going to have overall benefits jobs and 
new ways of thinking about producing energy that are more in tune with what's going on. We're late to the game, but we, we need to get on it. And it's not too late. Not too late. Not too late. You know, the changes that we've put into play are happening and they're inevitable and they're going to be something that we need to anticipate in all our decisions. John, you're on a road trip in the West right now and you're doing some work. Yesterday you were doing a project out in, was it is, is Western Montana? Where, mm-hmm. where was it again? It was French Basin. It was south of Hamilton. I think I was going south of Hamilton. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And a, this great, beautiful ranch working with Andrew Jakes, who's, we're lucky at National Wildlife Federation to have one of the experts on animal movements and how roads and in the particular case fencing impacts the movements of elk and mule deer so we joined the volunteers and folks from idaho fishing game and the montana fish wildlife and parks and we tore up fencing that wasn't needed on this ranch and you could see where uh, andrew was pointing them out to me where the elk they would come across the fence and there were places where you know it was falling down they could cross it but they spent how much time like going back and forth before they could find these avenues and now you know you take out this barrier and i asked andrew this it was absolutely it stuns me when i hear this that there's enough fencing in the west to go around if you were just just put it around in a single strand 6.8 times around the globe And that's just, you know, so... That's just in the West. Just in the West. And that's it. We did this little bit yesterday, but I guess it's really good to have these projects and have folks in the Fish and Wildlife Agencies that are focusing on that and have experts in our organization like Andrew who do the basic research to see how pronghorn and mule deer and elk and other animals move across the land and take up the barriers that are keeping them from you know, moving freely. You're heading to Salmon, Idaho now to meet with your son to go fishing. Well, first, I'm going to be his wildlife technician for the next couple days. He is working for Tempe Reagan, the non-game biologist over in the Salmon region. This time of year, he does wetland surveys, and then he goes up high elevation up in the sawtooth and white clouds to look for black rosy finch, a kind of bird that nests in those areas, pika, mountain goats, and they're doing just general surveys. So I get to be his technician for a couple of days. He still has to work the next couple of days. I get the time off, mm-hmm. for myself at least, and then we're going to go fishing. We'll probably come back here to Montana and take advantage of this big salmon fly hatch that happens this time of year. Awesome. Well, John, can you end your show here with three bits of advice for whoever's listening? Yes. Do what you can in your everyday life. Don't beat yourself up over maybe accidentally getting a straw when you're, (laughs) you know, out to or not recycling everything that, you know, don't beat yourself over. Do your best, but be act, be an activist. Make sure that you're participating in your community with your state legislators, with your folks that are going to Washington to represent you to make sure They know that you care. And the best part of it is if you enjoy the outdoors, great. Keep enjoying them. If you're not hanging out, not everybody needs to spend 
all the time like I do in the outdoors to enjoy things. But even in your backyard, I think, you know, especially during COVID, we all learned that having some time in nature is really good for you. So get outside. <laughs> Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. Dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world. Dedicated to documenting humanity and dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, John Cantor, the senior wildlife biologist for the National Wildlife Federation. Big thanks to John for all of his work on Recovering America's Wildlife Act, the movement to lead-free landscapes, and climate change, among other things. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also an award-winning podcast available on all platforms, including Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, and iTunes. In addition to the website, which is very cool, check it out, traillesstraveled.net. You can check out some of our other projects, our international outreach programs, and videos and photographs on location around the world while we gather these interesting interviews. If you're interested in supporting the show further in terms of our volunteer outreach programs, please look into supporting the show on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. The Trail Less Traveled is produced at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana. And this has been episode 457. Big thanks to the community and the Missoula Broadcasting Company for giving The Trail Less Traveled a home on the radio waves. If you have any ideas for a show or someone you would like to interview, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me by visiting traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is regarding microtrash. When you're heading out the door to go hiking or fishing or on an adventure, be sure to be wearing a pair of pants that has good pockets, perhaps a zippered pocket, or a plan for where you're going to keep the trash that you pick up. It's amazing how much rubbish is on the ground out there and you want to pick that stuff up. A small goal for the short term would be to pick up one piece of trash every time you go outside. And then from there... Maybe two, maybe three. Let's leave these beautiful landscapes better every time we visit them. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends, in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please get outside and do something for Mother Earth. Maybe plant a tree. Maybe pick up trash. And also, remember, shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by the Missoula-based and locally grown Mountain Meadow CBD. Their hemp is grown organically and all of their products are organic as well. Mountain Meadow utilizes a living soil technique that helps ensure the symbiotic relationship between the plants, the soil, and the insects. CBD has many therapeutic benefits, including, but not limited to, anxiety, joint pain, 
gut health, deeper sleep, depression, and as an immune system booster. Mountain Meadow CBD is a family-owned farm with very reasonable prices due to the fact that there are no middlemen between you and your product. They offer CBD tinctures in different strengths, pain solve, lip balm, vapes, and pre-rolls. You can find out more by visiting mountainmeadowcbd.com or on Instagram at mountainmeadowcbd.com.